0: So, Bhagavad Gita as it is uh, by Srila Prabhupada. We're going to read chapter 11, where Krishna reveals his universal form, text 36. Very magnificent verse. So, first, Sanskrit Arjuna Vacha, Stane Rishikesha, Tava Prakirtya, Jagat Prahishyat Yanu Rajatecha. Rakshangzi Vidani Dashodravanti Sarve Namasyanti siddha Sankha. Prabhupada's translation. Arjuna said, O master of the senses, the world becomes joyful upon hearing your name, and thus everyone becomes attached to you. Although the perfected beings offer you their respectful homage, the demons are afraid and they flee here and there. All this is rightly done. Purport. Arjuna after hearing from Krishna about the outcome of the battle of Kurukshetra, became enlightened and as a great devotee and friend of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, he said that everything done by Krishna is quite fit. Arjuna confirmed that Krishna is the maintainer and object of worship for the devotees and the destroyer of the undesirables. His actions are equally good for all. Arjuna understood herein that When the battle of Kurukshetra was being concluded, in outer space there were present many demigods, siddhas and the intelligentsia of higher planets, and they were observing the fight because Krishna was present there. When Arjuna saw the Lord's universal form, the demigods took pleasure in it, but others who were demons and atheists could not stand it when the Lord was praised. Out of their natural fear of... The Supreme Personality of God, has Devastating Form, they fled. Krishna's treatment of the devotees and atheists is praised by Arjuna. In all cases, a devotee glorifies the Lord, knowing that whatever the Lord does is good for all. Prabhupada. So let's look at this verse. Arjuna Uvacha. Arjuna said, Anyway, it's just uh, Sanskrit is so beautiful. It is, of course, so much related to English, like uvacha, from the root vach, vak, vocal, etc. Uh, vak means speech, we have vocal, and so on. So, Arjun uvacha. Stane rishikesha. Stana. Another Indo-European word. Stana is our English word standing, status, station, etc., etc. So, stana place. So, literally here in in the locative case, stane, in its place. That's what's translated here as um, rightly. In other words, literally in its place. Stane. Stane rishikesha, O Krishna, Lord of the senses. Tava prakirtya, by the glorification of you. Kirti is the same as kirtana. And prakirti of like direct glorification. So by that instrumental <laughs> tava prakirtya by the glorification of you jagrat, jagat prahriṣṭhiti the world rejoices. When we hear Krishna praised if a person's heart is not uh, infected with envy then, when you hear that there is an infinitely beautiful Supreme Being who loves everyone, your heart rejoices. If one is not infected with envy. So, Krishna says, Tava by the glorification of you, Jagat Prahishyati, the world rejoices, Anurajatecha, and becomes attached to you. Becomes attached to you. We become attached to so many things in this world, and we pay the price we become attached to imperfect things and our high hopes are not rewarded. So if we become attached to Krishna uh, then our greatest expectations and, and even beyond what we can imagine everything will be fulfilled because Krishna is infinite. If, as we know, happiness in this world comes from loving. Happiness comes from loving, and as Prabhupada explains in Extra Devotion, if we love something which is infinite, our love can expand more and more. It's like Prabhupada gave the example: if you let's say you uh, take a flashlight and just point the light into, into a let's say into a box, and the light can only expand according to the dimensions of the box. But if you aim that same light into outer space, the light can travel forever, practically. So so when we we give our first love, we should love everyone, but when we give our first love to Krishna, our love can expand infinitely because the object of our love is infinitely lovable. We are all limited. And so someone may love me or you, but we are limited. So the love, sure, people can love us, but we don't have infinite beauty. And so the love is limited, therefore happiness is limited. But when you love Krishna, your love can expand forever, infinitely. And then of course you love everyone, but so the world becomes attached to Krishna by hearing his glories. That's why we try to persuade people to just lend us an ear. And just hear about Krishna because he really is a supreme person. It's not this is not a faith based proposition. When you hear about Krishna, you'll realize that no one in history was comparable to Krishna. He was so beautiful. When Krishna appeared in this world, he was so attractive, so handsome. And there are many stories in the Bhagavatam that, let's say, a demon would attack Krishna, and as they were running toward him to fight Krishna, they would stop for a moment and just think, "Oh my God, he's
1: good-looking."
0: <laughs> I mean, these were demons who hated Krishna, but he was just. A, Wow, he was just so good-looking. And when Krishna would enter these cities, whether it's was or Hastinapur or Dwarka, all the women would just go... I don't know, ditzy. They would just... Because Krishna was just just so ridiculously handsome. And, uh, you know, don't settle for less. We want an infinitely handsome God, not a sort of a geriatric deity. <laughs> So, what they say in the TV ads, they used to say, except no substitutes. <laughs> so, Krishna is so beautiful. He's the supreme musician. Of course, his instrument of choice is the flute, but I'm sure he can you know, play many instruments. Anyway, it said that when Krishna plays the flute, that all the moving things in Vrindavan just stop. They're just stunned with ecstasy, and all the unmoving things begin to move. They begin like stones melt. So we can try to imagine well what's the melody? Like what's the chord progression? But actually when you when you when we realize Krishna, we'll hear music which which just maddens the soul. This this supreme music coming from Krishna. Krishna is the supreme philosopher. In merely seven hundred verses in the Bhagavad Gita, he explained everything. And actually, repeatedly explained everything. I find one of the most poignant and moving moments in the Gita is in chapter 18 where Krishna says, I've now explained everything to you, Arjuna. You know, now do as you wish. I've explained it, now do what you want. And then he says, but I'll tell you one more time. <laughs> that's Krishna's love. I mean, you can just see the love. Okay, I told you everything, now do what you want. Okay, I'll tell you one more time. Just So... Krishna, He is omniscient, very smart, very high SAT scores. Krishna is omniscient, He is all-powerful, and yet He does not, Krishna does not impose upon souls a might-makes-right situation. Krishna doesn't say, because I'm omnipotent and you're not, you better do what I say. He doesn't coerce our love. He doesn't try to coerce us with, with the most horrific threats. In fact, Krishna is so liberal. Krishna is so generous that in the Bhagavad Gita, he teaches directly that you in this world you can be wise, happy, and progressive, achieve a higher next life without him. Because these are all attributes of the mode of goodness. He's not a jealous God. Krishna is not a jealous god. <clears throat> He—I uh, <clears throat> forget—and I, I was speaking so much to camera, I was telling someone this uh, today. Oh, oh, that doctor, the king—that that we're so fortunate. We have—we have a god that doesn't need a twelve-step program, <clears throat> you know, for anger management or jealousy or or whatever. So Krishna, he simply says that. Whatever ticket you buy, that's where you'll go. You'll you'll go to that station. If you buy a ticket for Baltimore, you go to Baltimore. Buy a ticket, you know, Timbuktu. That's where you'll go. So, that's what Krishna says. He simply says that your choice, but those who worship Me will come to Me. Krishna doesn't force Himself in anyone. He doesn't coerce or threaten people. He simply lays out the facts. At one point I was making you could say, "Well, but to go to Krishna's planet or the eternal world, you have to love Krishna because here's a point philosophically speaking, Krishna is the source of all beauty all beauty we see I mean I mean everyone in this room has a certain amount of beauty. I become more and more beautiful as my body ages Just anyway, so everyone here has a certain amount of beauty, so but all that beauty comes from Krishna. He says, Jajjad Vibhuti Matsatam. Any existing thing that has Vibhuti, which is a special power, a special magnificence, special opulence, whatever you see, jad-jad Vibhuti Matsatam, Srimad, if it's very beautiful, Urjitam, powerful, Evava, tatareva, in each and every case. that exactly very literal. Tatareva, In each and every case, Avagacha Deeply understand. to Mamate of them It springs from a spark of my splendor. So, to reject Krishna is to reject the principle of beauty. Because if everyone in this world is attracted to something, and whatever you're attracted to, is simply a tiny part of Krishna, so everyone is already attracted to Krishna, mm-hmm. and that's what Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita: prapadyante." In the degree or in the way that you approach me, tongs tatayva I will reciprocate with you precisely. ta'iva. I, I will just in, exactly in that way I will reciprocate with you. Then Krishna says, "Mama Vartma, anu Manusha, In every respect human beings follow my path. This means that whatever you like, are attracted to, that is Krishna. It is part of Krishna. And Krishna's infinite beauty. He's infinite wisdom. He's infinite kindness. So to reject Krishna is to reject beauty itself. is to reject virtue. It, because that's what Krishna is. So therefore, on what rational grounds, on what reasonable, objective grounds would one to reject Krishna? One may say, I don't know Krishna. Well, Krishna's inviting you. It is, I find that not to try to understand God is practically a rejection of of reason itself. Because consider this. Imagine you were God forbid, Krishna forbid, imagine you're drowning in the sea, and a rescue boat comes up and throws you one of those, you know, life boys, and you say, Well, Maybe it's a trick. Maybe the rope will break. You know, you just thought, so never won't grab it. It's absurd. You're drowning. Unless you have a death wish. If you want to live, you know, to quote another one of our great devotees, come with me if you want to live. Terminator. Anyway, so... <laughs> come with me if you want to live. Anyway, so the idea is that... Um, why not try where is for example, science is trying to find some you know supreme equation. will they find it? They don't know but the whole spirit of intellectual adventure, the whole spirit of open-mindedness of reason is that let us try tirelessly to find the highest truth wherever it lies. So if we hear if we receive this report, <clears throat> from significant numbers of intelligent people that there is, an infin- there, there is an infinitely beautiful source of everything. On what grounds would someone not try to find it, see if it's true? On what grounds? Why pursue science? Just like, for example, biotechnology. I, I mean, uh, yeah, biotech. Uh, they're trying to... You know, as I say, biotechnology is the new Jesus. You know, uh, you, you know, the, the lame can walk, the blind can see, raising the dead. Biotechnology. So, but where is... If, if Krishna is there, then it, it solves every philosophical, metaphysical, theological riddle that ever existed. It amazes me that some people argue. They write books trying to show that there's no soul. It's what, what did I call this when I spoke at your place? They're awarding themselves capital punishment. It's, oh, yeah. it's if there is an eternal soul, you live forever. They dedicate their whole lives trying to convince everyone that they themselves have to die forever. This is a very strange psychology. Even if someone, let's say, was merely agnostic... By the way, Gnostic from Sanskrit "agyani," Gnosis, "gyana." So, even if someone, if someone doesn't know, that's all right. That's an honest position. You simply don't know. But if there's a chance that you can receive this this infinite reward, you can live forever. We have no evidence that biotechnology or or or, or medical research will ever make people live perpetually in human bodies, but they're still spending billions, billions of trillions of dollars trying to do it. People dedicate dedicating their lives. Why? Because it's worth the effort. But here is Krishna. Here is Krishna. Why not try to understand? How could you, once you even hear about Krishna, how could you ever be satisfied with a God that's not infinitely beautiful? I mean, well, I wouldn't say God is handsome, but He's not hes not like really ugly. But, I mean, it's ridiculous. God, God is a source of all beauty. How could God not possess infinite beauty? Yes?
1: Um, just a thought. Yes. Um, do you think, I mean, don't you think that people... I mean, because I'm constantly talking to people <laughs> in the work I do, you know, I mean, for all kinds of reasons, but... You know, when I talk to people philosophically about spirituality, whatever it may be, and in general sense, it's almost as if I feel like a lot of folks need to unlearn what they've learned because, you know, what you're presenting and talking about in terms of Krishna being all beautiful and all attractive and all the above. to a lot of people that sounds like well that sounds like a fairy tale that sounds like something Disney created and the <laughs> Disney real, should be so lucky but though. the real the real God is this you know because they've been trained remember from the get go yes you yes. know that God is vengeful uh moody uh, uh needs sacrificial bloodlettings every once in a while you know if you look at the certain Old Testament things um I mean, you know, he's, he's kind of a, he's a character, you know, and, not, and one not to be, you know, uh, messed with. You know, so it's kind of a different kind of a god is what I'm saying. So it's almost, I feel like, a lot of people need um, unlearning. Absolutely. Unlearning before they can actually learn.
0: Yeah, they've, uh, the whole enterprise religion of religion and God been really stigmatized. It's true. It's true. We are not. It's not. I I just give an example. It's not like Saint Patrick, uh, you know, going back to Ireland, where people just, you know, just a bunch of Celtic. I don't know what you call them. Sort of barbarians. Uh, Yeah. Very true. Prabhupada used to talk about the Viennese music teacher who charged extra if you had previous training, <laughs> because he had to had to unlearn what he knew. So, I mean, here we are historically. Well, l- l- again, l- let me just finish this verse here, and then, and then we'll Rakshansi. Uh, the word raksha means uh, a demonic being. So the demonic vitani, frightened, dravanti. literally. This sort of in Sanskrit idiom, they run to the directions. Uh, that's the way of saying Sanskrit, like they flee in all directions, they run to the directions. And Sarve namasyanti Siddha Sangha, all the successful or accomplished or perfected communities, literally, uh, will bow to you. By the way, bowing down, touching your head is something which was done in the Old Testament and not only to um, God to human beings it's interesting because in the Old Testament when uh, when Abraham when Abraham's wife Sarah passed away uh, and he was anxious to get a proper burial site for her and in that culture they would like you see in the case of Jesus, they would bury people in caves And uh, so he asked a Gentile, someone who was not a follower of what he was doing, if he would donate a cave for Sarah. And the man agreed, so then uh, Abraham bowed down to him. Similarly, uh, when David uh, wanted to build the first temple in Jerusalem, and he was sort of looking for some good real estate, and came across the Temple Mount, which I think at that point was like a threshing area, and so when the man who owned that temple mount, that land, saw the king coming, he bowed down and touched his head to the So it's interesting. Uh, it, it's not... It, you find even in the Old Testament this bowing. As a way of using your whole body to express devotion or, 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 or to express humility, it's just a sort of a rich way of expressing, using your whole body. Or, for those who are squeamish about that, you can always just do that. <laughs> So, um, if, you look at, if we look at our historical situation, if we, if we locate ourselves within history, uh, it's just as you said, Bob, it's, it's very much as you said, we are coming in the aftermath of a very sort of uh, bad set of facts in terms of religious history. And uh, in an age which is... Um, who knows how to describe it, sort of kaleidoscopically confused. And uh, somehow our mission is to try to present Krishna consciousness. And this is the real happiness. Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, in that famous verse, vishaya vinivartante nirahara siya When embodied beings, embodied souls, fast, nirahara, when they fast, uh, the sense objects, recede or they withdraw or they pull away because, you know, when you're fasting it's you uh, are not in the mood for all kinds of excitement when you're really fasting And so, as, as I explained in a previous lesson, you know, this is like a typical monastic strategy, if one is sort of being troubled by material desires to fast or and so on Krishna says, so the, the sense objects withdraw, but not the taste as I said before, you just have you know, like, you know, one solid meal and your desires come roaring back but Krishna says, Ex- seeing something greater, parangrishtva, seeing something greater, then even the taste uh, goes away. So the real secret of, of transcendence is, as I've been saying, is just to outgrow, is to outgrow our materialism. You just naturally outgrow it. And so. Like that great line from uh, "White Rabbit" by Jefferson Airplane, At the end. Feed your head, in the sense of. anyone know that song? White Rabbit, Jefferson Airplane. Anyway. So, uh, in the sense of, we ha- our, our our consciousness, we have to give ourselves Christian consciousness. But the higher taste this is what I want to say. Like, what what is that higher experience that lifts you above your material desires? That 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 situates you very strongly on the spiritual platform. It's giving. It's better to give than to receive. And so, the more we try to give Krishna, the more we receive Krishna. Krishna says at the end of the Gita, there's no better way to please me. Of all the devotees, the most dear one is the one is that person who's trying their best, as Prabhupada used to say, their level best, trying to bring Krishna's lost children back to Him. There's nothing we can ever do to endear ourselves, to endear ourselves more to Krishna than to each one of us within our capabilities, within whatever our vocation, whatever our situation, or family life. Just everyone's in, in their own situation. So whatever situation you're in, find a way to become useful to Krishna. We should find a way to somehow or other help Krishna to use our abilities. Every ability we have, whatever profession you pursue, uh, whatever ability you have, Krishna gave it to you. And so we should give back. There's this great line, uh, the George Harrison song, Isn't it a pity? Where he says, people are forgetting to give back. Isn't it a pity? So... And that's how we spiritualize ourselves. Because if there's any aspect of ourselves, either intellectual, emotional, physical, any aspect of ourselves that we don't use to serve Krishna will go into Maya's domain. That's like, that's in Maya's possession. And so that aspect of you, in terms of all your faculties and abilities and... You know, whether it's emotional, intellectual, physical, artistic, just whatever, whatever aspect of ourselves we don't spiritualize by using it for Krishna, that's the part of us that will keep us, will anchor us in the material world and prevent us from rising to higher consciousness. Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, Indriyanam hi which, I mean, you could, literally you could translate as the senses are grazing. It's just like, you know, like an animal is just grazing around the pasture looking for food. So our senses are kind of always just on the lookout for gratification. So Krishna says, mm-hmm. Indriyanang hicharatang janmano, which means many, kasminindri. many give you a Sanskrit explanation of the verse. Indriyanang hicharatang janmano nuvi Any one sense of your senses, in which the mind gets stuck, will pull away... Krishna says, will take away your wisdom. Because we have a certain wisdom. All of us, we, we have a certain wisdom. We have a certain understanding. Krishna, the soul. And yet, any one of our senses in which the mind gets stuck, um... Will pull away that higher understanding. And Krishna describes this process actually sequentially. is a very amazing set of verses, I think, in chapter 2, where he says, <laughs> That when a person, as we translate it, contemplates the sense objects, like let's say, for example, a pretty girl walks by and a guy's looking at her and he just sort of you know, turns his and just he can't take his eyes off her, he just keeps staring. Then in other words, contemplating. Or let's say there's something you want and, and then you just can't stop thinking about it. You start obsessing over it, you keep thinking about it, meditating on some something you want to enjoy. So jayato visayan literally meditating on sense objects instead of on Krishna. Then Sangaste Shupa Jayate, attachment attachment for those objects arises. If you just look at anything long enough, I mean, you can see it. For example, sometimes two people are thrown together, and, and at first they don't really, like, I don't really think that person is so attractive. Sometimes people are thrown together, but they just keep them together long enough, and they'll start, a certain attachment will arise. So, so attachment arises, and then sangat, sanjayate kama from that attachment comes real material desire. And there's one thing, like let's say I was, I was meditating on some sense object, or whatever it was, and then I started to become attached to it. But then, if, if it keeps going, it becomes a real desire, like I really want that. I really want that. And then, kama krodho and from this lust or desire, Krishna says, comes anger. Why? Because two possibilities. You get what you wanted, you don't get what you wanted. In both cases, you're frustrated. Because if you get what you wanted and then you, after some time, you realize, well, that wasn't the silver bullet. Like, that's not going to make my life perfect. It's nice, but it's just... Because, you know, we get these super ex... sort of like these inflated expectations and then we find out, no, it's just a material object. And then if you don't get what you wanted, uh, then, of course, you're angry. So, So... If one really pursues material desires, the only possible result could be a certain frustration and anger because material things cannot satisfy the soul. We are not material. We are not material. And it's like that example of the person who had, had a beautiful bird in a cage but just polished and adorned and bejeweled. The cage forgot to feed the bird. So the person ended up with a beautiful cage and a dead bird. So in the same way, we are taking... I mean, this modern society gives such extraordinary attention to the body and forgets the soul. I mean, I'm sure at Harvard Business School you can get a PhD in bubblegum marketing. I mean, every, everything which is somehow linked to material enjoyment is reduced to a science and then a subscience and then. But the soul? Slim Pickens. <laughs> So, Krishna says, the anger, then, krodad bhavati sav moha. And if we get angry, now that's not that every time we look at something this whole thing happens, but this is, Krishna showing you where it can lead. From anger comes confusion. Consider crimes of passion. People sit in a, in a cold, terrible prison cell for the rest of their life wondering, why did I do that? Why should I pull that trigger? A moment of just completely losing one's mind, and then the rest of your life, your whole life is ruined for one moment when the person lost control. It's actually quite tragic. So from anger comes confusion, bewilderment. Some Mohat Smith DB And when you become so confused, Memory is lost. In other words, you can't remember. You can't remember the consequences of your deeds. You can't remember who you really are. You can't remember what you're really living for. You can't remember all the great things you're going to lose. I mean, think about it. When people commit, you know, just people betray a relationship, for example. And, and, And I've seen so many cases where, so eloquently put by Joe Tex in his song, Hold On To What You Got. In the 60s, anyway. It's a great Krishna conscious song. But uh, people, they, they, they just forget. They forget that I, I, I gave my sacred word that that someone is, here's a person who's trusting me. Who is, uh, who has been good to me. You just can't remember anything. What's going to become of me? What's People just can't remember anything. All they know is that, well, they don't know anything. they just completely bewildered. So, smithir-brangshad, buddhi nasha. And when memory is lost, you actually lose the power to reason. You are flying blind. It's just like getting in your car, closing your eyes, putting your foot all the way down the accelerator. Reason itself, just the ability to reason, it's finished. And then Krishna says, and, and when reason is finished, the soul is just completely lost. So Krishna traces this whole thing and obviously the point is to stop this process before it unfurls. You know, to really... And that's why it's, Krishna says in the Gita that tasmā." what is it? Therefore, in the beginning, try to govern your senses. Otherwise, it's anarchy. Anarchy is very dangerous. And it, just like Plato explains, I mean, there, there, there's the soul, well, Plato actually didn't explain it as well as the Gita, but there's the soul who is supposed to be the master of this body and mind. The soul is supposed to govern these things. But if the soul abdicates its responsibility and the senses take over, they're, they're simply energy. The example is given the body in the Vedas, a very ancient metaphor. The body is compared to uh, a chariot. And the senses are the horses. The mind is the reins. The uh, the intelligence, reason is the chariot driver and the soul is the passenger. So imagine a chariot where the horses just are running wild. It's an extremely dangerous situation. So, uh, if we can somehow or other become attached to hearing about Krishna, as the Bhagavatam says, Shinvatang Sakatha Krishna, those who are hearing, about Krishna. Shinvatang Sokata Krishna Punya Savanakirtana. Krishna is so great that simply hearing about Krishna or speaking about Krishna purifies the soul. Punya Savanakirtana. Hridianta ksta all Indo European, isn't it? Riddi in the heart. heart. In the heart, Anta internal. Sta standing. Standing within the heart. He will drive away all that is not good in your heart. Because his heart is inclined toward good people. So if we can somehow or other develop a taste for hearing about Krishna from bona fide representatives of Krishna people actually know Krishna. If we can hear about Krishna and then tell others about Krishna, this is the essence of life. This is real happiness. This is real happiness. Of course, we all have to do other things. We have to eat and sleep. and uh, People have families. They have, they, they have professions. It's understood that we, there are certain basic human responsibilities one has to fulfill. But somehow or other, as Prabhupada said, we have to mold our life. Just like, for example whatever profession you're in, whatever profession you're in, there's someone in your profession who's an avid, avid something or other. You know, whether it's, uh, you know, a mineral collector or a, uh, something of like that, right? Or, you know, likes to read books or goes to certain movies or has a favorite, maybe musical band and goes to their concerts. In every, everyone here, someone in your profession is an avid something or other. So they find time for that. In every profession, you know people that find time for their special hobbies or sports or whatever. And our hobby, our sport, is Krishna. So Prabhupada used to always say that mold your life in such a way that you can keep Krishna in the center and whatever we're doing. A devotee doesn't have like a spiritual life and a material life. Okay, this is my spiritual life, and I've got to do this other stuff. That's my material life. Because a devotee does everything for Krishna. And a devotee sees Krishna everywhere. So, um, this was Prabhupada's dream. This was the dream of all the acharyas. This is Lord Chaitanya's purpose in coming to this world. to, To change the world to bring in a new age of Krishna consciousness. So, and that will actually make people happy. And the world is full of good people. Once I was walking with Prabhupada in uh, Rancho Park in Los Angeles where I also used to play little league baseball and uh, do other things with my friends. So, it's amazing how Krishna sort of like recorded over my past life. uh, Because Prabhupada... He, he went to Los Angeles, of course, frequently. And he would always go for a walk in the morning. Ever since year, in the late 60s, he had some heart trouble. and A doctor in New York told him, you have to get exercise. So probably religiously would take a walk every morning. And for many years, whenever he'd go to L.A., one morning he'd go to Venice Beach, where my mother used to take me when I was a little kid. That was the beach we went to. And um, one morning he would go to Rancho Park, where I played Little League Baseball and would swim and play with my friends. So, it's funny. I, many times I'd go in the car with Prabhupada because I was uh, on and all that. So many times I'd just be with the driver, someone driving the car, and I'd just be in the back with Prabhupada. And uh, we would drive down Motor Avenue, it's a very beautiful street, and we literally would drive past all the houses where I used to go to parties when I was in junior high school. <laughs> and, you know, there I was sitting with Prabhupada and I thought, what a difference, you know, a few days make. It was such an amazing experience. And then walking with Prabhupada, literally walking with Prabhupada over my Little League baseball diamonds. <laughs> and, and anyway, I just understood that Krishna was just um, like erasing all the, the. So now when I think of those places, I, I just think of Prabhupada. I also forgot the story I was going to tell you. What was I saying before then? I'll tell you something that Prabhupada said there in the park. And, uh, uh, good. What? oh yes good. yeah got so just remembering those times with Prabhupada anyway so one time we were walking in the park and uh, it was very funny I mean just sort of like you know youth psychology and all its glory devotees especially like the Brahmacharya especially the young guys you know they'd come to Prabhupada in those days and they would sort of they would try to they would tell Prabhupada the most horrible stories they could find in the news sort of like <laughs> Kali Yuga's getting so bad and the only hope is this movement. So in order, to, it, it's funny. It was, it was you know we were very young then. I didn't actually do that, but some people did. Like, Prabhupada, like I just heard a story that there was some priest you know that, that that was eating children in his congregation. I mean, not that that actually happened, but <laughs> you know, to try to show other religions what was becoming of them in the world. And it was a, you know they were very young. So one time a devotee came. This young brahmachari book distributor came to Prabhupada and said, Prabhupada, Uh, what did he say? Because he was saying to you know, the Americans are so materialistic and they're so, you know, they're just so demonic. And Prabhupada actually stopped him and said, no, he said, they're not. They're good people. They're just in ignorance. You have to teach them. So Prabhupada actually rejected the idea that people in general were bad. And, And they're not. There are many good people. There are many good people. They just need this knowledge. And we should not be fiddling while Rome burns. A somewhat anachronistic historical claim since the fiddle was invented after Nero. But he was playing some kind of instrument. Probably a lute. Anyway, but Nero was. Anyway, that was not a good incarnation for that soul. Anyway, so... Uh, we... Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita better than just offering me like material objects or material things give me your awareness in other words, see the world as I see it see the world as I see it accept what I'm teaching you is true and try to see things that way try to understand your own life in terms of my teachings that's the real offering And so Krishna, as I've quoted so many times, Krishna says, I'm the father and mother of this world. Krishna cares about every soul. They're His children. So how can we be indifferent? If we really care about Krishna, these are our eternal siblings. All these people out there that are, you know, whatever, all living beings. So how can we not care? How can we not do Within, again, everyone has their limitations. Everyone has their special abilities. Everyone, you know, you have to live in the body that Krishna gave you. But within our situation, within our, our, the life that we have, every one of us should try as hard as we can to help these people. They are our brothers and sisters. Everyone is our brother and sister. How can we be indifferent to them? How can we not? Prabhupada gave his life to save us. The reason that we know about Krishna is because Prabhupada consciously sacrificed his own life at his age, with his health. He shouldn't have done what he was doing. The doctors warned him against it. I was personally—I was Prabhupada's secretary once in, in 1976 in Mayapur, and his health was declining. Of course, it was—you it was, know—about well, maybe about approximately a year and a half before he actually passed away and his health wasn't good, and so a doctor came in. The doctor said, you have to stop all this preaching. And you can't just keep talking to everyone about Krishna. If you want to get better, you have to stop. So Prabhupada said, all right. And so his vow lasted about 45 minutes. Because he just... Because he saw who we really are. Prabhupada saw who we really are. He saw we were part of Krishna, and he just, his whole life, is about helping people the, the greatest help to come back to their eternal home so to love Prabhupada, to love Krishna to advance in Krishna consciousness to become fixed and advanced in spiritual life we have to adopt Prabhupada's mode because that's the mood of compassion of kindness of real understanding of who everybody is and so again, each one of us is unique. Each one of us has unique gifts and, and, or limitations. We all have duties in the world. But still, we should find the way. Prabhupada, you say, don't waste a single moment. Every second of human life is so precious. Every second of our life is precious. And we should try to find a way to use every moment to push forward this great mission. Krishna's mission. So, yes? Can you speak about sadhana... Sadhana and Gomorrah? Yeah, yes. How, how yeah, oh, <laughs> <How's> it, help? <laughs> How's it help develop that Sadhana in Sanskrit means practice, practice devotional service. <coughs> it, it's a word used, I guess, in the last many centuries. In the Gita, actually, the word, the synonym the Gita uses is uh, abhyasa. Abhyasa, which is sort of like an older term, which means the same thing, practice. Like Krishna says, by, the, by, by practicing yoga. So, um, the world has been created in such a way that if you want to become good at anything, you have to practice. Anyone know that great line from Pride and Prejudice? Lady Catherine de Berg says to Lizzie, you will never become truly proficient unless you practice on the keyboard. Remember that? (laughs) Yeah. So, um, if you want to become an expert musician, athlete, artist, scholar, business person, anything, anything in this world, yogi, anything in this world, you have to practice. Same thing, spiritual life. We have to practice spiritual life. It shows that we're serious. Let's, let's say someone knows how to play music because so they may sit at a keyboard and goof around a little bit. But if someone is really serious, if someone is really determined, I actually want to be a good musician, then they practice. When you begin to, in a disciplined way, to regularly practice something, it means you're actually serious about it. And how can we not be serious about our, about our, our own soul? If we're not serious about our own soul, then our whole life is just just frivolous. And there's nothing serious in our life. So uh, we should practice Krishna consciousness. Prahlad Maharaj in a great prayer says, "Natividu <clears throat> Vishnu. People don't know that the real way to achieve their own self-interest is through Vishnu, through Krishna. It's our self interest. We are part of Krishna, like the hand is part of the body. You cannot pursue your self interest unless you serve Krishna, because you're part of Krishna. You're part of Krishna. So there's, you can't separate pleasing Krishna and pleasing yourself. It's like saying, I won't water the root of the tree, but I will water the leaf. No cigar. There is no such thing. We're part of Krishna. And, and so, the more we love Krishna, the more we truly love ourselves. And the less we love Krishna, the, well, the more we're just neglecting ourselves. I mean, imagine, let's, let's say, a tragic case where someone in, in, in someone's family becomes mentally deranged and, you know, thinks there's some other crazy character. And the family, they're just hoping and praying this person will come back to themselves. And so rather than pursuing some wacko false identity, like I'm this body, we should pursue our real self. Because it's, I mean, there's a term in the Gita Atma Atmavan, self-possessed, when you, when you regain yourself. It's, it's, well, it's so basic. Of course, we have to practice. Any other point?
1: Yes? Can I quote George Harrison? No. So, <laughs> I did, so I guess you can. Okay. It's like he says, I want to see you, Lord, but it takes so long. And... Um just that concept people may try Krishna consciousness and you explain how beautiful Krishna is and how all attractive he is and how there's just nothing besides Krishna is mm-hmm. the ultimate and so on and, uh, but people you know, they try Krishna consciousness and they're, they're not they're not there and they try him like
0: George, Bhakta George and, uh, but he got so much benefit he receives so much benefit and he's receiving even more now Even if first you don't succeed, try, try again. There's a beautiful verse in the Bhagavatam where Narada Muni says, "Taktwasa dharma, chernam bhujang haree bhajan apakvoda patita tehydi tattra kwa va bhadramabhure mushakim kovaratapto bhajatam swa Which means Narada says that if someone gives up they Let's say their worldly duties. Charanam, Bhujang, and decides to give themselves to Krishna. I'm going to give myself to Krishna. And then, Apakvota, Pateta, Tajiti. If the person should fall from that practice because they were immature. Apakva, immature. Then, Tatra, Kva, of who get? what was the loss there? Because they tried. They tried to love Krishna. They tried to serve Krishna. What is the loss for that person? <laughs> and what is gained by someone that doesn't worship Krishna? Because if we don't worship Krishna, I remember I had this realization when I, uh years ago, when I, when I went back to college to finish my degrees, and, uh, I just had this epiphany where I was, was, sort of between classes, I was just, you know, we had a break in the class and I was waiting. And this old guy walked by. He was sort of, you know, hobbling and sort of really elderly person. And you could tell he he was like a a retired professor, just like, it was almost like he had a neon sign on him that said, you know, I'm a retired professor. (laughs) And uh, that's when I first went back to school. And I was, I'd already been in the movement for a long time. I was already, you know, a guru and everything. And so I was so used to, so, so just so accustomed to Krishna conscious society where a very senior person is, is, is respected and revered. And as he walked back, see, no one cared. No one, I could just see that no one cared about him. So here's and I can see, and I've seen many other retired professors like that. Here's someone that dedicated their life to scholarship, taught so many people, and yet as they get older, they're just kind of like relics, or not even that. They're just who cares? Whereas, if you dedicate your life to learning about Krishna, then as you get older, so many people in the world honor you. I, I, had, I had a similar experience that um, the first when I first went back to college it was 1991 and uh, I was in a Greek philosophy class taught by this uh, professor this was actually at UCLA and um, he uh, he was sort of a senior professor and he wanted to open the window and then he just sort of walked over he walked over the window opened it a little little bit of an older guy not that old but older and I remember I was just shocked because again I was coming from a culture where if someone's a teacher a venerable teacher and he's older of course you open the window for the person and the fact that all these young students were sitting there and no one even the people next to the window no one raised a finger to do it I just thought this is such a different culture this is such a different culture because they're just giving mundane knowledge and not giving Krishna consciousness. There's not any real respect. Anyway, um, we have to usher in this this Krishna conscious civilization. It's powerful. It's proven. It's passed the test of time. I've made this point many times. If you look at the history of religion in South Asia, Because there was always freedom in India, we talked to this nice family, the Baha'i family today, and they said that uh, one of the places where their Baha'i movement is most flourishing is is India. Because there's so much freedom there. People are so open, there's so much freedom. And it it was always like that. So, uh, So every imaginable religion was there. Christianity was in India, Judaism was in India, and certainly Islam came later, of course. Uh, and so many things, you know, Shaivism, Shaktism, Vaishnavism, Tantra, Yoga, Buddhism, Jainism, so many things. And, and not only different religions, but in, but just the absolutely full spectrum of possible and impossible forms of human religiosity. Just everything. I mean, if anyone know Rudyard Kipling's novel, Kim? It's about India through like the 1890s or something like that. It's just like the, whoa. Again, like kaleidoscopic. So everything was there. Everything was there. And people had the freedom to to promote what they thought was the truth. And in this open and free marketplace of ideas, with every conceivable and inconceivable product in the market, the big winner, historically, the most powerful tradition that just overpowered everything else but was Krishna Consciousness, Vaishnavism. on a level playing field. If you look at the great historical epics of India that just are absolutely at, at the center of the civilization, Mahabharata, Ramayana, stories of Krishna and Rama, the Bhagavad Gita, the single most important text in, in, of the entire civilization, Bhagavatam, which, as I said before, when the Europeans went went to India, tra- the Bhagavatam was translated more times into European languages than all the other 17 Puranas put together. Because the Europeans were trying to culturally colonize India, recognized that my, this is the book. This is the book that people actually take seriously. So, now, now, the, as, Prabhupada, as Prabhupada himself said, in the Western world, completing the Renaissance project, because the Renaissance is a rebirth of classical civilization, and classical civilization is, of course, part of Indo-European Vedic civilization. And so Prabhupada came to bring back the original culture to the Western people. He's bringing back the original culture. And on a level playing field, on a level playing field, fair and square, and, and respecting everyone, it's not a question of condemning it in some other religion or anything like that. With, with mutual respect, Krishna consciousness will, simply by its intrinsic spiritual power, will prevail and become a, um, a great guiding light for, for human civilization. Prabhupada always used to say, Prabhupada always used to say, Krishna is going to spread his movement. Raja Chaitanya said that. Now if you want, you take the credit. You serve Krishna and Krishna will give you the credit. Otherwise, you know, just sit on the bench and someone else will do it. That, I, I was walking with Prabhupada again at Rancho Park in Los Angeles when he quoted that beautiful verse that Mayai veitei uh, Krishna said to Arjuna, I have already slain all the warriors here. You just be my instrument. And I remember walking with Prabhupada and he quoted this. And actually, Prabhupada got into it so much, he took the part of Krishna. He began like speaking in the first person. And uh, like the Gopis, isn't they They became absorbed in Krishna? So Prabhupada became absorbed in it. And so he said to the Arjuna he was seeing there that um, Arjuna, don't think that any of these soldiers are going home again. They're not going home. So we can only be Krishna's instrument. But why not? Why not give yourself to Krishna? And let Him engage you heroically to save this planet. Has anyone got anything more important to do? (laughs) Anyway, I'm enlisting. I'm (laughs) re-enlisting. Because it's just so... Nothing can be more... I I say wonderful, it's funny because I probably overuse that word. One time... And then one time, Prabhupada was in Los Angeles, and uh, so I would, you know, I'd, I'd see him, and I'd, whenever he drove, every morning he drove out for his walk, so I'd go in the car, and go in the car, and drive out to his walk. And uh, so on the way back, like every day for, you know, a week or two, on the way back, I was just so excited, you know, to listen to Prabhupada. I would say, Prabhupada, it was wonderful what you said. And the next day I'd say, Prabhupada, that was wonderful what you said. So finally, after several days, he said to me, You always say wonderful, wonderful. I was like, can't you think of another word? <laughs> so <laughs> he wasn't angry at me, he was just saying, like, I mean, come on, I mean, no, you don't you have any synonyms? So <laughs> So it's funny, so for the next several days, I never said wonderful, I always chose synonyms. said, so, Prabhupada, that was an excellent talk. <laughs> Prabhupada was so great, he was so He just so embodied and personified the Sankirtan movement. His every breath, he was just, his whole life was just serving Krishna and spreading Krishna's mission. And he he drew us into that powerful consciousness. So, anything else? Well, thank you very much. Thank you. This will uh, end the philosophical portion of <laughs> nice program. Srinaprabhupada ki jai. Ridhananda Das Kasani ki jai.